Welcome to Deacon's Pod. I'm Deacon Dennis. Say hello to my co-conspirators, Deacon Drew and Deacon Patrick. Hello, this is Deacon Drew. Hi, Dennis. It's good to be here. It's Deacon Patrick. So today we're going to be talking with Robert Ellsberg, author and publisher in the Catholic world. But it's the middle of Advent. And what do you guys like to do to prepare your parishioners and friends to celebrate Christmas? I know I always try and tell them not to rush the season, to really enjoy preparing and slow down and maybe step away from the craziness, the shopping and the parties and everything that we try and cram into these few short weeks between the start of Advent and Christmas Day and to really start celebrating things as they should be. Advent is a beautiful season, and then Christmas, just the shining star on top of it, where we get to celebrate the incarnation of Jesus and all that means for our history. But what do you guys like to do? That's a really good question, because what happens is all the things you just said, good advice, and I try to give that advice, and I try to live that advice, but invariably, if you're still in the working force, You find yourself invited to party, after party, after dinner, after cocktail reception. And every year I promise myself that I'm going to say no. But when you say no to somebody for a Christmas party or an (laughs) Advent party, nobody calls them Advent parties. When you say no to a holiday party, you know, that sends a certain signal. So you have to say, all right, I'll stop by. So it is just so hard not to be as busy as you just talked about we shouldn't be as we wait in watchfulness for the coming of Christ into our lives. So I try to preach that to myself more than I get a chance to preach it to everybody else because we don't want to push our religion on people either too much. But what you said is what I try to do. But can I get it done every year? We all know preachers are preaching to an audience of one. They're preaching to themselves. Doesn't right. matter where they're at or who they're talking That's to correct. on the external. Form. And I announce that frequently at the beginning of a homily. All my sermons are to myself. You're just listening in on, on me trying to make this mess work. And <laughs> when people laugh, but I want them to know that because it's true. Like, don't take offense. I'm talking to me. This is what I got to step up my game for, or whatever. I'm not doing you people out there, whatever. So, no, that's <laughs> yeah, really no. true. I know. It's the you taking the you out of the homily. Don't yeah, keep, yeah, don't say yeah. you, say us, we, yeah. me. Me, I. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'm a mess. Yeah, try uh, and take the labels out. There's no us and them. It's just us. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, but so it is news. hard. It is hard. Like Drew says, we're all under the gun. I had it relatively easy in my work life because I taught mostly in Catholic high schools or worked for dioceses and stuff for the first half of my career. And it'd be like one party, a staff party. So it wasn't like you would go into multiple parties all the time. And then, of course, the second half of my career, I was in prison. So there were no parties. <laughs> so it was... Uh, they, didn't let, they didn't let you bring a six-pack of beer in to share with the no, inmates? No, no. <laughs> I'd be sharing a cell. So I didn't really have that. I had the kids and the running around and making Christmas happen. And that was pretty intense. And my wife and I, we both have huge families, so... And then Christmas was at my house, you know, all the time. Once the parents got old, it was at Uncle Dennis's house. And man, my brothers-in-law would come. They'd have dinner, spend a couple hours, lovely, get in the car and go home. My sisters-in-law stayed for days with three or four kids to the point where after Christmas and the weekend thereafter, and I was going to work. Uncle Dennis had to step over the bodies of his nieces and nephews to open the front door and go out. And I would get crazy after a while. My wife said, oh, yeah, it's such a Scrooge. I said, Christmas is, they're not supposed to be here all 12 days of Christmas. Why so not? I never, yeah. yeah, well, that's what she said. And I never, I never won that discussion. So anyway, so that was hectic. But of course, that's Christmas by the time that's happening. But Advent was the only real pressure I had was getting the decorating and getting the presents and all that stuff for the kids. So it wasn't that bad that I wasn't able to maintain a sense of where I was in the liturgical calendar. So Controversial Christmas topics for Advent and Christmas anyway. Baby Jesus, is he in your manger today or does he come out on Christmas Eve? 
Oh, no, he's in there. Christmas. We all know how the story goes. <laughs> Come on. It's not a spoiler alert here that we I, put him out. <laughs> I will say for, well, yeah, but here's the thing. I will say for my, my parish, it's Christmas Eve. Okay. And for my house, it's also Christmas Eve or Christmas morning, depending on when the grandchildren are in the house. And since they're generally with us on Christmas Eve, it's a big production. We have the grandchildren bring Jesus and put him in the manger. Oh, nice. Very nice. So, yeah, so my manger nice. that I'm looking at uh, has built, it's all one piece. So, Jesus, either no manger or you got it with Jesus. So, And since this is our last episode of the calendar year for this year, we got to know the other controversial topic at Christmas. When does the tree come down? Is it on the curb December 26th? Negative. Negative. Epiphany. <laughs> you go to Epiphany? Christmas. 12 days. Anybody Which going again, to February 2nd? It's, it's <laughs> Epiphany. It does not come down till after the Feast of the Epiphany. And again, this is part of the craziness. Oh, we've got to go to everybody's house today. I can remember that too, running to both sets of in-laws and bringing the kids and, and everybody's exhausted and miserable. You've got 12 days. Well, you've got to see me on Christmas. It's 12 days. This is not a store where we're on to the next sale. It's Christmas. And I just think we're crazy to give that up. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm sensing in this conversation, in this short conversation, that uh, there's a grumpiness to your Christmas spirit, Dennis. Oh, there is. You're not sensing. I thought I was pretty explicit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought I was pretty clear. Yes. I, I just think that we're throwing away some of the good stuff and increasing the crazy, and it's our fault. Like, yeah, I rebelled. I don't send Christmas cards out until Christmas. Like, well, maybe the 23rd, I'll put them in the mail. But it's Christmas. It hasn't hasn't happened till Christmas oh, Eve. Oh no, your card is late. Your no. card is late. I'm an afterthought. Oh yeah, listen, Christmas cards, bah humbug. Okay, <laughs> you know who gets Christmas cards? This is me. Now again, I don't work for Hallmark, so hear me out on this scam of Christmas cards. If I'm going to see you and say to you, I'm s- "Merry Christmas," you. I don't feel obliged to give you a greeting card because I greeted you. Now, my friend in somewhere across the country that I know I'm not going to see or talk to, yeah, okay, they get a Christmas card. But I know people, it's like, no, you got to send people sending them in the house. In fact, I know some people that their dog sends another dog a Christmas card. I actually know one person like that. The boss thinks I'm grumpy. Am yeah. I wrong? If I let me quote, yeah, the you Lord got a little here. Grinch in there. Yeah, wait a minute. let me just. Are quote, you wrong? Are let you me wrong just quote, about what? Let me just quote <laughs> Jesus here for a minute, if I may. If I'm wrong, point out the error, Paul. If not, why do you strike me? <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, no. I just think that we, and again, with all the other pressure of getting everything ready, that you have to get ready. Four hundred Christmas cards. I am not a politician. Why am I writing four hundred Christmas cards? I'm because, just asking, asking for a friend. Because you have 400 people whom you love. Now, we should turn, I think, to our guest, who we will find, I think, is maybe a little bit more hopeful about the Advent and Christmas season because he talks and lives his life with saints. Why don't we turn to Robert Ellsberg? Robert Ellsberg is well known to anyone who reads about faith, Catholicism, Saints, Dorothy Day, and or Sister Wendy Beckett. He is the publisher of Orbis Books, the publishing arm of the Mary Knoll Society Fathers and Brothers. He is the author of Blessed Among Us, the book published by Liturgical Press, as well as the column Blessed Among Us, which highlights a saint each day, canonized or not. A very interesting column. He served as the managing editor of the Catholic worker for two years from 1976 to 1978, where he met Dorothy Day. The relationship with the Catholic worker and Dorothy Day prompted him to convert to Catholicism. He is the author of many books. We are honored and pleased that he has agreed to sit down with us today. Robert Ellsberg, welcome to Deacon's Pod. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. I just read from your bio. And the bio I got was, came from several sources, including Wikipedia. And I think that should say enough about you right then and there. If you have a Wikipedia page, you're important. 
<laughs> and you have a you have a nice one. But what I the quote I prompted you to convert to Catholicism came from the Orbis publishing bio that I read on you. And our show is about people on the margins or people seeking God, grappling with our church. Our usual question, which we usually ask at the end, is if someone is standing in the doorway to the church trying to figure out whether to stay or to go, what would you say? I'm not going to ask you that question yet, but I think I'd like to hear, if you're willing to talk about it, your spiritual journey. You converted to Catholicism. What does that mean? Where did you come from, and how did you get here? And if you could, tell us why. Sure. Well... I was raised in the Episcopal Church. I was raised by my mother. My parents were divorced. My father is quite well-known person, Daniel Ellsberg, the whistleblower who released the Pentagon Papers in 1971 and who died just earlier this year. So I was influenced by both of them in different ways. My, my mother introduced me to Christianity. My father introduced me to the importance of care for the world and of asking deep questions about responsibility and what it means to be a citizen and a human being responsible to others. And through that experience of the Vietnam War, I came halfway through my college career to feel that there were questions that I needed to explore really about what my life was for. I was very influenced by the teachings of Mahatma Gandhi. And I found my way to the Catholic Worker in New York City, 1975. I was 19 at the time, not really particularly attracted by Catholicism, which I didn't really know anything firsthand. I drifted away from practice of organized Christianity, but I was drawn to the Catholic Worker because of Dorothy's, Dorothy Day's example of kind of radical faith committed to the poor, living on the margins, her commitment to social justice and peace work. That's what drew me there. I hadn't been there more than a few months when Dorothy Day asked me to be the managing editor of the Catholic Worker, which was kind of astonishing and really changed my life. If it hadn't been for that, I, I might not have stayed. Uh, but I did ultimately for five years, though, two years as managing editor. And it was not really right away. It was actually toward the end of that time that I was drawn to becoming a Catholic. One of the people I talked to about that was the famous Dutch priest, Henry Nouwen, whom I'd gotten to know. And he said, there's no reason to do this if it's a matter of just switching from being an Episcopalian to some other church, unless you feel that this is a way that you're being called to know Jesus more deeply. I think if I had become a Catholic earlier on without really knowing much about it, except for the Catholic worker, I might have thought that the Catholic worker was my little church. But it was actually during the two years that I spent as a hospital orderly, working in a home run by the Hawthorne Dominicans for indigent, poor, uh, terminal cancer patients. And I had a lot of time on my hands. And I began reading a lot of Catholic writers like Flannery O'Connor and Thomas Merton and other spiritual classics. And gradually, this kind of question began to arise in me, what if I were to become a Catholic? I think like a lot of people, like Dorothy Day herself, I think we were attracted to the idea that the Catholic Church represented a kind of total worldview, not just a set of beliefs, but a way of looking at the world, looking at life through the lens of the important kinds of mysteries and of the faith, the incarnation, the, the redemption, salvation. And that's what drew me to the, to, to the Catholic Church. After that, I left in 1980 and returned to college, and therein began the kind of path that led me ultimately in 1987 to uh, work at Orbis Books, where I've worked for the last uh, 36 years. Well, that lesson has a lot in it for people who have not found what they're looking for. In other words, be open to the spirit moving within you, and especially the people you met. Henry Nowen, I did not know that you had met and got to know Henry Nowen. He would have probably convinced me to become a Catholic, too. I actually became a Catholic right around the same time you did. I came out mm -hmm. of a Southern Protestant background. And, and I made my profession of faith in 1975. Back in those days, and being with Dorothy Day, and those of us who know anything at all about Dorothy Day, did you have any, did Vatican II have any impact on your path, your decision-making, or what was going on at Catholic Worker at that time? It was brand new, I guess. 
I couldn't say that's the case. I came to the Catholic Worker in 1975, so 10 years after Vatican II. I didn't go through any of that transition or trauma from before and after, whether you're, whether that was traumatic or liberating. I took that for granted. Dorothy Day had been living uh, a Vatican II for a long time before the Second Vatican Council. Uh, the concern for the role of the laity, the universal call to holiness, liturgical renewal, commitment to conscience and social justice, ecumenism, biblical literacy, all those things. I think that what attracted me, I didn't start by reading the catechism or something and saying, okay, I believe this, I believe that. I think it was really my encounter with holy people, including Dorothy Day, and through her, what she, how she introduced me to the stories of the saints, to see how the gospel, how the faith was embodied at its best within the Catholic tradition. That's what really drew me originally, and maybe that's why I've spent so much of my life elaborating on that discovery. Well, it's almost as if you read my outline. <laughs> I'm about to ask you about your column, Blessed Among Us, which deals with a saint every day. And we can get into a little bit more detail in a couple of minutes, but how did you get there? And you just gave us a heads up on how you got there. Um, when I say how you got there, you've, you're, you've written many books. I think one of your first books was a, a spiritual book about Gandhi, correct? That was the first book I published when I was at Orbis Books. But before that, after Dorothy Day died, I, I did a, an anthology of her selected writings. That came out in almost 40 years ago. Actually, it was 40 years ago. So that was my first book. But my, I think what you're getting at, maybe in 1996, I published a book called All Saints, Daily Reflections on Saints, Prophets, and Witnesses for Our Time. And that's the first book I did on saints, and it, and it as the title suggests, subtitle, uh, it's 365 uh, meditations or reflections on a range of holy people that was you know, far wider than just the canonized saints, but included writers and artists and theologians and modern martyrs and mystics. And that was a book very much inspired by my time at the Catholic Worker, because that was something that I took very much away from Dorothy. She was fantastically devoted to the saints. The canonized saints were like friends and companions that she invoked all the time. St. Joseph, St. Francis, St. Benedict, St. Teresa of Avila, St. Therese of Lisieux, her favorite saint. But she almost interchangeably would invoke the stories of people who had fought for social justice, contemplatives, mystics, even fictional characters that she felt represented kind of models or ideals of holiness for our time. And so that's where I got the idea for that book, not really realizing that I was doing something that might really change the way people think about saints. So that was over 25 years ago. In fact, just this year, Crossroad published a 25th anniversary edition of the book. And among other things, in the introduction, I noted that in those last 25 years, about 45 of the people that I included in the book who were, who were not officially saints at the time have begun or have moved along the process toward canonization in, the, in that time. So a pretty good uh, batting average. But that I didn't realize at the time that was going to be the beginning of something bigger. Altogether, I think I've done about six books on saints. And as you started by introducing me, it was 2011, a liturgical press invited me to take that kind of idea from All Saints and apply it to this new journal, Give Us This Day, writing a daily column, Blessed Among Us, that appears uh, every day except for Sunday and feast days uh, in, in the journal. So it's been you know, going on for 12 years now. And I just want to give it a plug, first of all, for those of you who have not, for those of our listeners who have not picked it up or thought about reading it or saw it and didn't read it, the journal Give Us This Day is a wonderful spiritual resource. If for nothing else, Blessed Among Us, the column that you're going to get that we're talking about now, it will enlighten you and it has, as it has enlightened me about people that I've never heard of. And it really motivates me, and I think it will motivate everybody when they read about these saints who, who may or may not be canonized. Some of the saints you highlight are canonized, but many of them are not. And what I'd like to go to next is you, we normally don't talk about when we're recording, but this is going to be a special one because we're going to mention the Christmas season and the Advent mm -hmm. season. Our producer may make me take this back and cut it out, but we are recording on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. Last Monday, the 1st of December, you did a webinar live, Advent with the Saints and Robert Ellsberg. 
I happened to watch it. It was fantastic, by the way. It was marvelous. And I'm only saying that not just to be nice to you, but to encourage our listeners. They can go now and watch it again on YouTube. If you just do a search on YouTube, Advent with the Saints and Robert Ellsberg, you'll, it pops right up. And I highly recommend it because he highlights a, a, several saints who touch Advent, either by their birth or their death, I think mostly by their death. And it's just wonderful. You came up with a, I think you said, and I think this is true. If you said it, it's true. <laughs> but I think you said it. A new one, Feast of the Holy Shepherds. Well, I, they're not really official saints, I don't think. Exactly. We, we recognize them from every Christmas pageant and, and creche. They're very a critical part of the Christmas story, these shepherds who were among the very first witnesses. We think of the Incarnation, the Nativity, as this world-changing, history-changing event. But it wasn't actually witnessed by the important people of the day. The angels appeared to shepherds in the field, not even to the innkeeper's wife or her husband. The <laughs> shepherds we th- are, play an important role in the Bible. The right. Lord is my shepherd, and David was a shepherd, and God seems to show a lot of favoritism towards shepherds. But shepherds in that time, actual time, were very low on the social scale. They lived out in the fields with their sheep. They smelled like the sheep, as Pope Francis would say. They were not important people. And so I think that it's a a very important part of the Christmas Advent message that that this fantastically important event was addressed, first of all, or witnessed, first of all, by animals and among the poorest of the poor. And what that says to us about where we should be looking for God's breaking into history around us, and not always on the front page of the newspapers, but sometimes in very obscure uh, places, and that it is, first of all, those on the margins. Right. Beautiful story. In terms of the Christmas season, on December 28th, I'm going to name the person that's in the December volume here. And I found this one interesting. And Dennis, I think you will too, if you haven't had a chance to look at it yet. We're not at December 28th, so you probably haven't turned to it. But you've talked about these guys. This was a worker priest. Now, I'm going to absolutely butcher this name, and I'll say, I'll pronounce it the way I'm reading it. Egid von Brokhoven. Yes, he was a, a worker priest. I've, this is, I'm writing about him here for the first time since I wrote that a, a year ago, and don't have it right in front of me. I, all the details are not utterly fresh for me, but it's a very moving story about a, uh, a priest who, this was a movement then back in the 1950s or so in, in France of priests who really were trying to overcome the bridge between the church and the working class. The church had become estranged from the workers, partly because of the kind of association of the church with the royal past and their hostility toward the French Revolution and all those kind of processes of democracy. So it was partly because of the experience of World War II, where many French priests had been deported with French workers or had been in POW camps and had really had the chance to mix it up with people who did not identify with the church and felt that they needed to undertake a different kind of ministry, which was to actually work anonymously in in factories. Their identity as priests, when that was discovered, usually became an opening to, to, to dialogue and a new kind of respect and fellowship that was a new experience for them. It was not just the working class, but also the overcoming the kind of separation of clericalism that separated priests or the church from the ordinary faithful. And so the movement was initially sponsored by a lot of bishops, but ultimately had opposition from more conservative circles, and it was suppressed. But Egid himself died in an accident in a factory, was killed, and his writings were published after his death. And a lot of the theme was about the need for expressing our faith through friendship, not just through charity, but actually becoming friends with with other people. And I think in that sense, he is such a prophetic figure in terms of Pope Francis's most recent encyclical on fraternity and social friendship, uh, a word that we don't, we don't use often enough. So anyway, that, he's the, one of the first people that a person that I'm, each month there's often several people that are new, uh, right. me, as well as old favorites that I repeat every year. He was new to me, but he's one of those people that you highlight that's just inspiring to people who may or may not ever consider that they could be saints too. If I could quote from your column, yeah, he said, I desire one thing only, your love. 
and to bring this love to men. As far as I'm concerned, all the rest is just blah, 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 blah. Yeah. <laughs> in, in quote, sure. which he's like ahead of his time in terms of using the vernacular. <laughs> I think so. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I hope that Pope Francis learns about it if he reads Guinness instead. So can, if I can flow from that to Dorothy Day. Now, you've mentioned her, as I said in the introduction, everyone who knows anything about Catholicism knows of your relationship to Dorothy Day. You've written about her. You worked with her, maybe for her. I doubt that she would have said that you're working for her, but that's just (laughs) my take on it. And we are coming up on the Christmas season. We're not there yet. We're in Advent. We're good Catholics. We'll stay in the season that we're in. But I was wondering, and I've never seen anything writing about this, and you may have written another whole book on this, but I haven't seen it. I was wondering if you could tell us about Christmas and Dorothy Day. Did she, was it a season that motivated her like it motivates so many other people, or was she just so on all the time with the incarnational Christ that it was the same for her every day? Dorothy participated very deeply in the whole liturgical year, all of the seasons of the church of liturgical year and its feast days and its fast days and, and all of that. So I think that I'm not sure that Advent was more important than Lent or, or some of these other things, but I, I think in a diff- very deep way, Dorothy's whole faith was grounded in this kind of aha moment that God entered into our humanity and our history. That was literally the solution to the problem of her life. Since it's we're recording this on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, I can say that it was on this date, December 8th, uh, that she went to the Basilica, the Shrine of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C., which was being built at the time, and down in one of the lower chapels in the crypt down below. She said with tears and anguish, she offered this prayer that God would show her some way to combine her faith with her concern for the poor and oppressed, because she'd been a Catholic now for about seven years but had felt very much estranged from her former colleagues or comrades in the radical movement who thought that the church was on the side of the rich. And she was in Washington. The occasion was to cover a march of the unemployed that was being led by former communist friends. And she wondered why Catholics weren't leading such a movement. So she goes to the Basilica on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception and offers this prayer, she says, with tears and anguish that she would find some way of reconciling this. She said she longed to to make a synthesis between body and soul, uh, between the temporal and the eternal, between this world and the next. And I think she really then, she goes back home from this to New York, and actually then soon after that meets Peter Morin, who inspires her to start the Catholic Worker newspaper and movement. So in effect, it was the answer to her prayer, what she's supposed to do, But the synthesis that she was seeking was right there in the central doctrine of the church, that God had entered our humanity. And she took very deeply this, uh, responded to this mystery, that when that happened, it was in the form of this vulnerable baby born on the margins in a barn because there was no room in the inn. That was partly the motive for her emphasis on hospitality, in a way, was to make a room in the inn for the homeless. She took from that, you know, what Jesus said of Matthew 25, I was hungry, I was naked, I was homeless. What you did for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did directly for me. So that was the motive of of her practice of the works of mercy, of her voluntary poverty, of her practice of radical nonviolence. All of that came from that mystery. So I think that in a way you could say she lived the kind of Advent Christmas mystery all the time. But I think she did definitely see Advent as a place of kind of clearing out the cobwebs that gather in our faith over the course of a year, making a space for a fresh start for God to be born in our in the in the inn of our hearts, making sure that there's a space for him there to be born, and the love, hope, and faith that kind of proceeded from that. So yes, I think in that sense, Advent was a very important time for her. I would presume she carried that through Christmas. I mean, my simple, silly question would be, did she take Christmas Day off? I don't even respect that. (laughs) (laughs) That's like taking a day off from life. Exactly. She didn't really have a day job, exactly. Every day was an effort to follow Jesus and to carry him in in her her heart and to make that uh, known in the way she interacted with other people and 
the way she lived her life. Now, in your list of non-canonized saints, I was just wondering, we just recently had the Bishop's Conference endorse the canonization of Father Isaac Hecker, the founder of the Paulus. Oh, yeah. Has, has he ever been one of your non-canonized saints that you've written about, just out of curiosity? Well, absolutely, absolutely. He was in the original uh, All Saints. And it's, in a way, part of the origin of the book was that I realized that I've always just had this fascination with how faith is lived out in actual lives. So I went to college and I was in graduate school and I realized that just about any paper I'd ever written was taking some figure and really trying to understand how their thinking emerged from their life and the kind of moment in history that they were living through. So I actually wrote a paper on Isaac Ecker when I was in graduate school. That's how I learned about him. Wow. And okay. I was so, so preparing me for this interview today. There you go. <laughs> I haven't looked at it in a while. But I was, I was very interested in people who really tried to relate the faith to the questions or the problems of their time. And uh, Hecker is such an interesting person because here he was kind of the spiritual seeker of his day. Like a lot of seekers today, he was, if he were alive today, he would have tried all kinds of things, maybe Hare Krishna or Zen Buddhism or whatever. He belonged to all kinds of different religious movements of his time. And he finally finds his way to Catholicism, which was really not where kind of young seekers of those days tended to end up. And he thought that Catholicism, he had this amazing idea that Catholicism was actually the destiny of America. And his, his ecumenism and his belief in kind of separation of church and state and democracy, he thought, were really a, a fertile ground for the for the blossoming of Catholicism in America, but he also believed that experience of American Catholicism had a deep message for the rest of the church, which in effect was endorsed or recognized at Vatican II with the influence of the Jesuit John Courtney Murray and the support for conscience and religious freedom and the separation of church and state. In many ways, that was the kind of fulfillment of uh, Hecker's uh, dream. We're not yeah, quite he, there yet with the Catholicization of America, exactly. Yeah, that's going to take it. Yeah. There's still work to, for the Paulists to do. But anyway. Yeah, yeah. But it's interesting, both him and Dorothy, talking about both of them really prophetically anticipating the Second Vatican Council. Yeah. And a, stuff that, and again, I'm a little bit older than you, Robert, and so I know that my early experience of Catholicism was what the historians call the long 19th century yeah. that went on, went on in very, affected various places depending on where you draw the line. But the long 19th century for the Catholic Church went up to the mid 1960s with Vatican II. And so I'm familiar with the old devotions of this or that, all the things about that we grew up with. And so I find Dorothy astounding and we're talking for her, the 1930s, way before I was born, her coming to this synthesis. And I'm just trying to think of my background, which was very much, we got to get these immigrants into the middle class. Mm -hmm. Sister's going to tell you in the Catholic schools, this is how you sit, this is how you stand, this is how you dress, you walk over here, you do this, you don't do that. And they did a remarkable job because here we are in that mm -hmm. regard. But the idea of let's go work among the poor, let's go march with the radicals. This has got some, that's got something to do with Jesus. That is not at all. I'm always interested in who did Dorothy get this stuff from, or was it just the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in her life? That, that's pretty pretty rare for someone to come up with that. Just like Hecker was 1850 coming up with some of the stuff that we wouldn't even acknowledge that uh, you had a right to your religious freedom or conscience or any of these other things until a hundred years later. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think maybe it helped that Dorothy was a convert and was not uh, brought up with all of that. When she became a Catholic, I think one of the things she really responded to was this idea that it was a church that made a total commitment on you. And I think she early on had this sense again that to be a Catholic was not just to believe certain things and to go to church on Sunday, raise your children, be Catholic, but it was a real call to holiness. Now, she was a layperson. In fact, she was a single mother at the time, and I don't think she considered the idea of a religious vocation in the old sense of becoming a nun. It was not really an option for her. So she was in a, a kind of adrift, sort of thinking about, well, 
Not very much is really asked of lay people, just that they be good Catholics. And not that kind of, we usually sense in the old days, we would think that it was nuns and priests and monks. Those were the kind of super Catholics who were called to be saints. But Dorothy's reading of the saints and reading of scriptures, we're all called to holiness. And it doesn't mean being canonized. It means making a total commitment to to, to Christ. And the gospel, the Beatitudes, as, as something that provides a kind of blueprint or guide for how we're going to live our lives. And it's a, a process that's never really finished. So she was looking for a way to do that when she met Peter Morin. Now, she was very influenced by people like St. Francis and St. Benedict and other saints. But it was, I think, partly her discovery also of St. Therese of Lisieux, who provided this idea that there was a way to holiness in everyday life through what she called the little way. Therese was Dorothy's favorite saint. You didn't have to be in a monastery. You didn't have to. Holiness was not just something that, that occurs in some holy place like church, but in everyday life. So that was a very important thing to her. She was very motivated by her background in the radical movement. She saw people who did not call themselves Christians who had this the heroic devotion to social justice and to the cause of the poor. Now, it's not unusual in, in Catholic history for people who made a commitment to the poor rather than to the middle class. That's the story of lots of religious orders, or even performing the works of mercy, feeding the hungry, and that sort of thing. Catholic history is replete with saints who did that. What was unusual for Dorothy was, first of all, to do this as a layperson, and with just the resources that were at hand, and I must say that, just to point out, that it was the Paulist uh, who gave her a help right in the first, in the beginning by helping her print the first issue of The Catholic Worker in 1933 and contributing to, from the beginning to her cause. But what was really distinctive about Dorothy Day was combining this charity, Works of Mercy, with a passion for social justice, that it was not just enough to feed the hungry, but you had to raise questions about a kind of social structure or a system that causes so many people to be hungry. So it's like taking the story of the Good Samaritan. Yes, you bind up the wounds of the person who's been wounded. But where was where were the saints, she said, to change the social order, not just to minister to the slaves, but to do away with slavery? So she brought with her that kind of impulse from her radical background as an activist and an alliance of other social radicals. And, and combined it with the works of mercy in, in a way that I think was, was uh, really unique for her time and remains a kind of distinctive aspect of, of her model of holiness today. We had an earlier guest on a few months ago, maybe a year ago now, Julie Leininger Piscior, who wrote the book about Thomas Merton and Dorothy Day, The Greatest Commandment. You know, Thomas Merton was the biggest name in, in Catholic spirituality of his time. And Dorothy Day was this marginal kind of kook from the point of view of most Catholics. Thomas Merton elevated her and said, this is the person that we should really be listening to. And so he begins writing for the Catholic worker in 1961, 1962, writing these fantastic pieces criticizing nuclear war, which got him into, Merton into trouble. Uh, Merton, uh, Dorothy Day didn't expect Merton to uh, leave, uh, the, leave the monastery. She, in fact, she that was her anxiety. Always she was praying for his perseverance. And that was a kind of a theme in their correspondence. So so he was a great admirer of hers, and she was a, a great admirer of Merton's. They had differences about some other things, but about his prophetic voice on the nuclear issue. This is years after Dorothy Day had been getting arrested every year for taking part in protests against mandatory civil defense drills in New York City which started in the mid-1950s, around the time I was born. And she felt that this was all a mad kind of rehearsal for doomsday to get people used to the idea that if you just follow directions and follow orders, everybody will be safe. You'll just duck under your desk in school or you'll go to a bomb shelter, uh, which was all madness. If there was a nuclear bomb dropped on New York City, New York City would be obliterated. And she felt that the only way to peace was through nonviolence and not through preparing for credible threats of nuclear weapons. So every year she would be arrested and she'd go to jail for five days or 30 days. And you think of, at the time, she was thinking, well, she's an oddball, or she's even the judge who sentenced her said she was a hypothetical murderer. Because if everybody did what she did, think of thousands and thousands of lives that would be lost. There were no bishops joining her in City Hall Park during this time. 
And most Americans just thought that this was nuts what she was doing. But she pointed out that it was this uh, a certain kind of logic and belief that our, we could be protected somehow by this canopy of threatening to blow up the world that was the real madness. And Merton, too, at that time was writing that the idea that we can defend ourselves or defend Christian civilization or democracy or whatever by the threat of, of killing hundreds of millions of people was a, a kind of blasphemy. The book is very big on, on their close relationship and how much time they, uh, how much, how much, how they wrote back and forth to each other and how he did help her and she or publicized her and how she loved him. It was just a great thing to, to look at the two of them talking about mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And when you say the rest of America thought she was a kook for what she did, I don't disagree at all. I was eight years old at the time and living in Miami, which was 90 miles away from where the Russians had set up missiles in Havana in Cuba. And I remember having to crawl under my desk in the Miami school system. And I remember talking to my parents and everybody else. And although I would agree with you, my parents probably thought Dorothy Day was over the top. They agreed with this eight-year-old that this is not going to help crawling under my desk. (laughs) (laughs) They drop a a nuclear bomb on us. We're all... And now you can take your shoes off at the airport. That's... uh, (laughs) You wonder sometimes, really, this is going to... This is a big thing. Let me ask another question about Dorothy, Robert, that I've always wanted to ask. I never met Dorothy. I thought about it going in the early 70s, and it just kept slipping away, and I just... eh, I didn't get to do it. I didn't get to meet her. Now, my wife, she met Dorothy. And one mm-hmm. of her claims to fame is Dorothy slept at her house in her guest room. Wow. On one of her trips from New York up to Boston, she stopped uh, outside of Providence and stayed at my in-law's house with my wife, who had no idea who this old lady was. And her father explained it, and she got to know Dorothy, so she's a big fan of Dorothy. Anyway, here's my question. I've read enough about Dorothy. I've worked in soup kitchens a little bit and stuff like that. And it's just a madhouse situation. I've always wondered, and no one's ever told me, and so I'm asking you since you were there, did Dorothy Day laugh a lot? Huh. That's it's a good question. The pictures of Dorothy always make her look really severe and humorous. Yep. yep. Because she didn't like to be photographed. And so when someone was taking her picture, she would scowl. The fact is that Dorothy was incredibly, incredible fun to be with. And she had a wonderful sense of humor. She didn't mind jokes at her own expense. She was a very sharp and amusing judge of character, very ironic. And she had a, I think everybody who knew her has said the same thing, that she had this kind of girlish laugh that was very infectious. And that's how we remember her, by how much fun she was to be with. You enjoyed being with her. She loved telling stories. She loved listening to stories. She showed great interest in other people. You could tease her and she would laugh. So, yeah, I remember there was a Catholic worker, one of the earliest ones, John Court, who left, uh, graduated from Harvard during the Depression, went to work at the Catholic worker. And he said he saw this woman who he seemed like an old woman to him. She was in her 30s. And he said, she seems to be having a lot of fun in life. And he wanted to experience that for himself. That was very much the case for me, too, by the reasons I stayed there so long, because it was not a, uh, there were hard and depressing days a lot of the time, but she just had a lot of joy, and she could communicate that and share that with others. Yeah, I suspected that, because you just can't sustain that kind of work and lifestyle over that extraordinary length of time and not have a sense of humor. But I think we need some writing done on that, Robert. I think because, like you say, he, she talked about, she wrote about really serious stuff, and the pictures of her is her getting arrested, which of course is not a happy moment. But you just that severe face that you mentioned—that's why I asked the question because I just knew that God, she couldn't have made it that long if she couldn't laugh. So maybe yeah. you could dig up a little, do a little talking to people, and write us something about Dorothy's sense of humor. Well, well, she's not like someone who told jokes or something like that. No, no, (laughs) but the fun, that element is, I don't think Uh people think of that when they think of Dorothy is all I'm saying. And also there was a kind of uh, spontaneity to her. There was a youthfulness to her. I knew her when she was in her late 70s, early 80s. And she was, in one sense, 
pretty old, even older than an 80-year-old today would be. All my friends are 80s and they're out doing stuff. And she had arthritis and she had emphysema and she had congestive heart failure and she had all kinds of problems like that. But she was so interested in young people, identified with them, understood their struggles, their failures, as well as their victories. And that was so encouraging. A lot of old people are impatient with young people and feel like, well, you haven't been around as long as I have. You don't know what I know. But you never felt that with Dorothy. You felt that she was a contemporary in a way, that she was always open for an adventure, always open to start something new. So, Robert, you're a book publisher in the Catholic world, and you've been walking with the saints, as it were, for quite a while, both canonized Mm -hmm. and otherwise. And you mentioned just a moment ago the struggles and the things that come with old age to the human body. What does Catholic book publishing look like for you today? Would you see that industry? Is it ripe for renewal? Is it struggling? Is it on a tremendous downhill spiral? What's going on? Well, I would say it's struggling. You mentioned the Modern Spiritual Masters series a moment ago. That started 25 years ago or something like that. And when we began publishing those books, it was the era, hard to remember now, of religious bookstores. And bookstores loved that series because people would come in and they would have maybe bought one of the books in that series and say, oh, there's a new one, collect them all. And you might be introduced to people that you hadn't heard of before. And the, the series had a kind of identity and a kind of credibility to it. Once the bookstores disappear and everybody buys their books from Amazon, well, you can find the book if that's what you're looking for. You can even get it at a discount with free shipping. But but otherwise, this the series didn't work anymore as a series. And I found that I could only really sell books in the series that were by people, usually living people, who had a large, already existing public audience. So that has made a, a big difference. I'm actually editing a volume on Dorothy Day now for the series. I held on to that myself. Didn't want to give it to anybody else. Uh, the successful books recently have been by Richard Rohr, Ron Rollheiser, Joan Chittister, people like that who are still very much writing for a living audience. And that's just one of the things that's a struggle. But you can go all, all around, even not just people who do read books, but I think younger people, college students, my colleagues who teach at university or seminary or college, they, they say that the students are now so used to getting things online and having access to all kinds of information without ever having to go to a library, much less a bookstore, that they they don't necessarily have the same sort of cultural habits of reading books. And I just, it's hard for me to relate to that because my whole life and consciousness has been shaped by books and by people who recommended books to me. And I can think of particular kinds of books that I read that just changed my life. But to read a book requires a certain kind of focus and dedication and commitment because you can't do it in 30 minutes. (laughs) It takes some time. And that time that you invest in that kind of changes your brain in some ways. It can change your soul. And that's one of the things that, that I think we're losing touch with now. I may be that I just don't see what the, in the kind of evolutionary process, what the new advantages are of media that we can consume in different kinds of ways and how that's going to change our souls and our minds. And I can't say for sure or anticipate that it's all for the worse, but it's different. And for those of us who are still doing what we were doing 35 years ago or 36 years ago when I started, it's a challenge. And I'm getting, I have to say, toward the end of my career. And and so I it'll be for others to to, to carry that through to another generation, another year. Well, our hope is that your participation here in Deacon's Pod is one of those things that will help the young people and some of the older people out there consume this new media and maybe change their life. I was wondering if the what the shift was like for you in the publishing world as we transition more to digital publishing. And I noticed Give Us This Day is available as a digital product as well as in print. So what was that like? Well, we were not among the first to do that. We wanted to see how it worked and how it settled out. And once the path was pretty clear, we do all of our books, both in print and in ebook editions. We don't have the capacity to sell the ebooks directly from our, you know, 90% of it through Amazon, through uh, Kindle editions. 
And I have no objection to that whatsoever. We do quite well on, on ebooks, except that they, it does reduce the print run for the, for the print editions. And that makes unit costs higher, but there are no returns on ebooks. And from that point of view, it's, uh, I have no objection. You want to read a book in a, <laughs> on your laptop or your Kindle or you, or, or read it in print. Uh, that, that's, uh, that's, that's your choice. And the one question that's been on my mind as you started out our interview today was walking with saints. Who do you walk with on a daily basis? Who are your go-to saints that are really who you lean into when you need some help? That's a good question. Uh, You know, I begin my day, like many other people, reading the saint of the day and give us this day. Sometimes those are stories that I've read many times. I wrote them after all, but they, many of them have been repeated five or six times over the last 12 years, and some of them are new. But it's always new to read it on that particular day and to ask yourself, what is this story asking of me or telling me or teaching me today? And I read it aloud to my wife and we talk about it. And, and I find myself, like I hope many other readers, often just amazed by what a a multi-textured story it's possible to tell in 250 words. There are some stories that you can't tell in that space. But often the story that I'm trying to tell in that story is how a person responded to this call that made them feel that there had to be something more to life, uh, that life was, or the gospel, God was calling them to to something new. And it might have been to join an existing uh, religious community. But a lot of times it was to invent something that seemed appropriate to what they felt was the challenge of their time, but also appropriate to their own temperament or or talents and how that was realized. And it wasn't just realized without struggle or misunderstanding or failure along the way, but this idea of what Pope Francis calls a journey faith, in which it's not just a matter of two plus two equals four, but it's a matter of of experiencing and encountering God along the way. That is the story that that draws me to these saints. And my aim is not just to venerate them or meditate on how great they were, uh, but to think of how that is also the case for us. We may not be called to found a religious order or to be a martyr or become another Dorothy Day, but how is God calling us to something more? And I think we often feel at a the kind of crossroads that Dorothy Day was on this day in 1932 of trying to figure out how does our faith relate to this moment in history or the situation in life that I find myself in. And I find, I think that meditating on the saints helps us see the way that that God's story is also being written in our own lives. And the same kind of questions or doubts or uncertainties that we feel, they also felt. And our job is not to imitate them, but to try to listen to that voice that's speaking to us from the gospel story of the day or from the story of a saint that we might have read that day or the encounter with somebody along the way that we meet that day uh, is posing that kind of challenge to us. So let me ask you, you mentioned your father before, and he was a very famous man. And I know that at least one time you were with him and got arrested with him. But how he recently died, as you mentioned, how are you doing? How are you coping with that? I'm okay, thank you. It was actually what you would call, I think, a very happy death. He was 92. He found out in February that he had incurable pancreatic cancer. He was told that he had three to six months to live. He lived for four months. And the first three months of that was really a, a blissful uh, time for him. That was kind of a mystery. <laughs> but he did not go through the usual Elizabeth Kubler-Ross stages of grief or anger, denial of bargaining or whatever. He, I think, had felt that he had lived a long and meaningful life and that he had, in fact, to, to have a kind of expiration date exit date was actually comforting to him. And he also said that, he said, I've always written better under a deadline. I think I actually live better under a deadline. And he used that time very happily with his family, doing things he enjoyed, but also uh, right to the end of his life, uh, using his breath to continue to talk about his, his principal preoccupation, the danger of nuclear war. He was interviewed all over the place. And I think if he wrote a letter that sort of went viral, the kind of last statement, 
in which he said that he he wished that he could show more for his efforts on trying to save the world from nuclear war, but he felt that he had done what he could, and now he was kind of passing the baton uh, onto others who would carry that forward. Well, please know that so many of us who did not know you personally and certainly didn't know your father personally prayed for you both during that time. Those of us who followed you on Twitter and elsewhere, you had our prayers, and we just were happy to hear that you're doing okay. Thank you. Very much appreciated. Here's our question our, that we bring to everybody. You come across a person standing in the in the doorway of a church, and they don't know whether they want to stay or whether they want to leave. The question we have for you is, what, if anything, can you say to that person to give them hope and to help them along their journey? Well, you're standing at the doorway or outside, and it may seem like stepping in through that door is going into a smaller world, <laughs> a world in which dictated to by priests or by rules or laws or strange beliefs. And I guess I would say that you have to experience it from the inside to see that it, it actually enlarges your life. And it's an invitation to enter into a larger life and a life uh, in which you're not alone, even if you don't belong to a very friendly parish or something. It's a world of beauty and amazing tradition. And the example of holy people, that's, for me, what kind of holds me fast to the church through many years in which I felt a lot of frustration, I have to tell you. I am very grateful that I lived into this era of Pope Francis, which has renewed and strengthened and inspired my faith in many very important ways. I feel that he is the kind of Pope of Dorothy Day's dreams, as if she had dreamed him up or something. And I feel he's the saint of his dreams as well. Just recently, we uh, the Vatican reprinted a book that we did of her early memoir, From Union Square to Rome, uh, and Pope Francis wrote a foreword to it, which is maybe tipping the scales a little bit on her cause for canonization that's in process. But I think that it's, I would not have become a Catholic if I had not felt that there were the lives of people that I could look to who verified the authenticity and the truth of what they were talking about. Because you'll, you come in the church, you'll find lots of annoying people, you'll find a lot of terrible sermons, you'll hear a lot of bad music, you'll hear all kinds of things that might discourage you. But the, the real benchmark of what it's all about is by those who have lived it most faithfully, I think. And uh, that's why I feel my kind of my own calling is to share those stories as widely uh, as, as, as I can. Thank you so much. And that was one. Thank you for that answer. And thank you for this interview. It's been a wonderful time that we've spent with you. Yeah, it's really thank nice to meet you after so many years of reading your stuff and your columns at Orbis and things like that. It was really you're one of those people for a lot of us, too, Robert, that uh, part of the cloud of witnesses that makes us say, yeah, I can hang here. Even when things get tough, when you meet the other people, that is, as I always say to people, the parable for the real world is the wheat and the weeds. This thing, I just want the wheat. Yeah, no, that's no, not yeah, how it works. It all, it, all, it all goes together. Yeah, yeah you can yeah. go to another field if you want, but they got weeds. I don't care whether they tell you about it, you'll find them. <laughs> so. Well, I can't remember who exactly was who said that if I ever think of leaving the church, going somewhere else, I'm going to bring myself with me. And I'm going to have all the same limitations and problems <laughs> that yeah. I I think that was Groucho Marx, wasn't it? Maybe so. And Dorothy Day felt the same way when she talked about the church. She included herself in it. She was very critical of, of the failings of the church, but, you know, said we, 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 we have to work on what's within our power to change, which is only ourselves. That's what my mother and father always said to me. Don't do what I do. Do what I tell you to do. <laughs> yeah, that's another way to go. There you go. I know. This has been great. And we should mention before we leave, Orbis Books, you can find them at, and correct me, Robert, I'm presuming here, orbisbooks.com? That's correct, yes. Uh -huh. Okay. Wonderful can, stuff. We have a all, Christmas yeah. sale in, in, in place now. A lot of things up to 75% off, so it's a good time to visit our website. Wow, it is, a good, it is a good time. I'm going to go there right after we get off of this. Okay. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank, Thank you, Robert, Nice to meet for, you, Robert, for all absolutely. you do. Merry Christmas. Nice to meet you. Merry Christmas to you, too. Special thanks to El Jefe Paul Snatchko and our editor, David Dalt. The Deacon's Pod is powered by the Paulus Fathers. 
You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts and, of course, at our own website, www.deaconspod.com. That's D-E-A-C-O-N-S with an S, Deacons, plural, pod, all one word, dot com. And, of course, we'd love to hear your comments at our email address, which is deaconspod, again, with an S, deacons, at paulist.org. That's P-A-U-L-I-S-T dot org. Love to hear from you. That's our offering. We thank you for being with us. On behalf of our colleagues at the Missionary Society of St. Paul the Apostle, we wish you a future brighter than any past. Till next time.